0: Avail. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. I'm Rev. Dina material from Israel. And you know that I, well, we all love because it's all very, very practical. And for me, it's a very refreshing type of Torah because it's very real and it doesn't make us feel guilty. And it doesn't make us feel like we're supposed to be anything but human. And that's what I like about it, that it really addresses, you know, the human struggle on a very, in a very real way. And, um, so, you know, we're talking about, um, the different ways that Taiba or impulse control affects us in terms of our character. Uh, And our character, of course, we said, is very much um, the result of the four elements that we all contain, earth, water, wind, and fire, in different doses and different measures. And in each one of the elements, taiba, impulse control, rears its ugly head, if you like, in various ways. So, we're going to continue, and this is uh, the new idea. The last idea we talked about is the question of when does the Yates or Hara come into a person? And we said there was a argument, or discussion on an argument, a question that uh, Antoninus was a, sorry, I think I said Greek, but he was a Roman emperor, and Rabba who actually was not Rabbi Yehudah Anassi, my son tells me, though he was living at that time, and there is another story about him and Antoninus, but another great rabbi. They asked, when does the Yetzir Hara come into a person? And the answer was that, you know, the question was, "Does, does it come in at conception or at birth? And the answer given was, no, it has to be that it only comes in at birth. Because if the Yetzir Hara would come in at conception, there's no way that the fetus would agree to being confined inside the womb for nine months. Because the nature of the Aids or Hara is, you know, uh, don't tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. And, you know, it basically, you know, um, it basically... Um, responds with a reflex when it's being told what to do with that kind of independence. So, you know, whether this is a lighthearted uh, conversation between them or this is really true that the Yitzhahara comes in at birth for this reason, it's an interesting way of putting it out there that it has to be after birth because there's no way the Yitzhahara would agree, the fetus would agree to being in the womb, which is so interesting. Anyway, so... We're gonna start with another um, parable to how to understand this idea of time. So imagine you're a tourist in Africa, and you see an elephant that is big and strong, and the elephant is moving towards this little child that happens to be, for some reason, you know, where the elephant is. And you start getting nervous that there's gonna be some kind of tragedy. So the elephant, at one point as you're watching, I guess you can't help the situation, you notice that the elephant makes eye contact with the child. And the child, a pile of wood, and distracts the elephant, so it goes over to pick up the wood and move it to another pile. I guess elephants like doing that. So the nymph shell, meaning what we're supposed to take from this parable, is that my desire to do the right thing is so small? In other words, my desire to do the right thing is weak. You know, it's very important to understand that the Yitzharah is much stronger than the Yitzharto. Okay, and we say that without Hashem's help, there is no way that we could ever defeat the Yitzharah. It's much smarter, it's much trickier. It appeals to all of those senses, the physical senses that we have of indulgence and laziness and sadness and all of those negative character traits. And we know as human beings, we say over and over again that we are negatively wired, right? We're like that dog that goes and sniffs at every hole. Oh, and has to be yanked out of there because we have this natural inclination our body makes us that way to go with gravity, right? And to do what's easy and to do what feels good. You know, so just on a simple level, that's the eight of And literally, we don't, we really can't beat it. Except for the fact that Hashem says, I'll help you, right? If Hashem's on your team, then he can help you beat the Aids of Hara. But generally speaking, this is the idea that my desire to do the right thing is so weak. That voice is so much weaker. Yeah, I want to, but the answer is much stronger. No, you don't. No, you don't. Right? Um, but the one advantage that I have over the elephant is what that little boy has. He has Sechal. Okay, so Sechal and the answer to are connected, right? He has Sechal, and when he uses it, he can direct his taiva, so to speak, to where he wants it to go. So, you know, it's really going back to our Shema class that we have to love Hashem, with all of our yitzers, with our yetzer tov and our yetzer hara, right? Instead, of the word love with your heart, has two bets. You really should be laid ha. But in the Shema, they're telling you, you to love Hashem even with this, Yetzerhar with this taiga that will take you away from Hashem. You want to use that koach of taiga in the direction of Hashem. So it doesn't have to be a negative thing. And this is very much a part of, you know, Jewish philosophy. That almost everything can be turned towards good, right? We sent that as an example, even an angry, an angry nature, right? The person's passionate to change the world because they're so angry at injustice or they're so upset by the inequality of, you know, people not getting what they need. Then that's a good kind of turning it and channeling it in the right way. So this is the idea that we have seichel to be able to outsmart our Yetzirahara things that we battle with in our heads but things that we battle with emotionally okay, so you know somebody wants to eat a whole cheesecake and can't help themselves this is obviously an emotional impulse and it's a manifestation of some kind of inner baggage some trigger that leads me down that path okay, so one of the examples that Dina Spoonmaker gives, which is interesting she says, you know I have a big time to over-function with my children. Now, this might be something that some of you can relate to, right? She says, the youngest is 12, but I treat him like he's fine when he's getting ready to go to school. And she said she once read in that book, How to Talks So Children, Listen, a quote that said, a good mother is measured by what she doesn't do for her child. Oh, my, does this go against the Jewish <laughs> doting, you know, stereotypical mother of, you know, let me chew the food for you? Or as somebody told me from the Clinton Park? Well, I don't know I, what my mother said. If I could chew the food for my kid, I would do that, too. Right? Maybe, I don't know. Anyway, but she says that she can't do that because that's one of her timers. One of her times is to get herself more involved. In her children's life, continue to treat them as if they're five years old because you know she doesn't want to get grow up, but right? I don't want to be any older, so let's keep this relationship the same, right? And, and and it's a problem. So she says this could be a time. So she gives the example. Let's say your kid forgets his sandwich at lunch, you know, for school lunch, or his umbrella, right? So the question is, should you bring it to him or her, right? So she says one, you know, idea is that obviously if you do it again and again, you teach them to forget their sandwich and their umbrella or whatever it is, again and again. On the other hand, a child will remember forever how you brought them your sandwich, right? What a wonderful mother you are that you came and brought them your sandwich. So it's not always so simple to know when you should not be, be responding and check yourself whether it's because they need it or because you need it, right? Whether it's better, you know, you got to be cool to be kind. That whole idea of Kevura, right? That we want to do the Chesed. We're naturally wired to do kindness for our kids. But we know obviously that kindness can be controlling that impulse and saying, you can do it yourself, or I'm going to withhold my chesed because it's so important for you to have the space to, to grow yourself in this area. But this can be very difficult, and this is just an interesting way that taiva can express itself. So the idea is, when you're checking yourself, you have to ask yourself if it's coming from an impulsive place, like, you know, when you... Uh, just want to eat the entire box of chocolates, which we know is coming from an impulsive and emotional place, right? Or maybe you're just exhausted and you have no no impulse control at all, right? Or you're angry or you're upset or you're happy or whatever it is you want to eat that whole box of chocolate, right? But whatever it is, if it's coming from an impulsive place, this is part of the definition of timing. Sometimes it's the right thing and it comes from how, right? It's not so simple. That's why we have the Yiddish Amama, you know, stereotype. And um, okay, so to continue, Rabbi Rucham Levavitz says that Hashem is described as Narachim, Narachim of Albani. He's a compassionate father with his children over in terms of his relationship with his children. So the question he asks asks, is, isn't the mother usually the one who is merachim? Isn't the mother usually the one who is the compassionate one? And by the way, just interestingly, the Shorish, the root of the word, rahamim is the word rechem. And rechem is a womb. So there's a natural connection between the fact that a mother who you know, carries a child and gives birth to a child would be the more compassionate one. So why is God describing me in the uh, masculine as a father? So she gives a few examples. She says, you know, a mother, you know, has has rachamim on the child's physical person, but the father has rachamim on his spiritual self. So she gives the idea that, you know, the mother's who mother says, come on over here, let me pull up your coat, you're going to be cold, it's cold outside, come here, get your hat on, get your coat on, whatever it is. But the father wants the child to succeed spiritually. That's his impulse. So his, his compassion is come and sit here and let's learn, even though you know we're going to fight through this whole learning session. But that's what he wants. He wants his kid to... So she says another way to explain this is the mother is lying on the present, on the right now, right, what do you need, can I feed you, what What can I get you, what, you know, what are your needs right now, and another explanation is that the father is miraing about the future, he has a long-term vision, you know, this is what I, where I want my son or daughter to get to, I want them to develop into this type of Torah personality, right, to develop themselves spiritually to the degree that they can. And that's what he's looking at the long term. <clears throat> so it says that sometimes Hashem doesn't bail you out because he's more like the father. He believes that struggle and sweat now is really the compassionate way because in the future you're going to be a lot greater. You know, I used to, I don't know where I heard this, but I sometimes tell my kids this now. I say, let your kids hate you when they're young and they'll love you when they're old. But if you're very concerned about them loving you when they're young, they're more inclined to hate you when they're older. And of course, I'm using these terms very loosely. But the idea is, is that, you know, if you're, if you're driven, and, and, you know, when they talk about this a lot today, and of course, this has been part of the generational decline, if you're driven by wanting your kids to be your friend, right, and wanting there to always be peace and shalom, so you'll give in to things for the short term, right? Because right now, we need peace. Right now, I don't want to fight with you. Okay, here, have the candy. Here, have the this. Have whatever it is. And, of course, the desires and the demands get larger and larger as those monsters get larger and larger. I shouldn't say that. As those kids get bigger and bigger, right? We know that. So the ability to say no and to control your own time. I'll tell you a funny story, you know. I remember as a young mother we, you know, go on a trip to Toys R Us, right? Okay, it's Sunday, nothing to do, let's go to Toys R Us. And I remember I would give myself a lecture. You know how you have that big parking lot, it doesn't matter where Toys R Us. So you have a long walk to give yourself a lecture. So I give myself a whole lecture. I wouldn't give the kids a lecture. In other words, you know, now just remember you're only getting one present, and it can only be $20, that's tops, and blah, 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 blah. No, I would give myself the lecture, because I knew that I was going to be the problem. That I was going to go into Toys R Us, and I was going to want to buy everything for them. And I was the one who was going to need a lecture to say, no, they're having one gift each, and it's only going to be this much money, and da, 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 da. And I would give myself that lecture because I understood that in the moment me struggling with my emotions and with my desire to, you know, make them love me and see how great I am. Of course, for my own need to wanna, you know, maybe satisfy that child in me that didn't get enough presence. I don't know. But whatever it is. The point is, is that, you know, a father's more able. In turn, and this is a generality, of course, to be able to look to the future, not as emotionally pulled as a mother may be, right, to take care of things now. So the idea of your children disliking you when they're young is because you've set boundaries and you've said no, and as painful as it is for both of you, you've realized that ultimately it's going to be good and there'll be a good relationship because of it. Whereas, of course, if you give in and in and in, you know you create this monster. So when you stop, it can be difficult. Okay, I think everybody understands that. Now there are sometimes the rules are switched because we all have male and female traits, right? Anima and animus. I think uh, Carl Jung said that, Um, or I don't know, whatever. And so sometimes you have a mother who's tougher than a father, right? Uh So, you know, being a helicopter parent is often not what the kid needs, but what you need, right? You have some kind of issue with having to rescue, having to save me, right? Today they have the uh, steam shovel parents, say like, I once heard an analogy of, you know, that game curling. Are you sweeping the ice while that thing is going down? So those are the parents who are busy getting rid of every single obstacle that, God forbid, their child should ever have to encounter in life, you know. They have to be in that class with that teacher with those friends at summer camp and, up, and God forbid, they don't get the kugel that I need. And, oh, no, no, it can't be like that, right? And so, you know, that's the overdoing, impulsive Mothering that is not about them as much as it's about us and our inability to withhold. So we have to use our sechel to overcome this elephant. This elephant being this gates her heart So Rabbi Friedlander says that your is setting up for success, that you have to have a strategy for technical success, just like his kid and was able to distract the elephant, you have to have strategies to be able to, so to speak, trick the Yatser right? Or trick yourself It's not walking down that path of impulsivity. Don't put yourself in a place where you have to struggle with the Yatser, right? We all know, right? If we have a certain type for food, we have a difficulty withholding it. So it's not going to help if we fill our, our, our cupboards with all the foods that we love to eat that aren't good for us, you know, we have to have a strategy. My husband likes to be my strategy, you know, they'll say, no, you don't want to eat that, and you've said it over and over again, you know what, that makes you feel sick. And of course I go, no, no, it's fine, it's okay, it's alright, Tell me more. <laughs> you know, and you see, you're, 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 you're fighting with the person because it's like, no, I want to give in to this, leave me alone, I know I told you to say that, don't say no, today don't say it. okay? Tomorrow we'll try again, right? So we have to set ourselves up for success. So we often define ourselves and others by how they deal with problems at the moment. But that's not fair. Because you have to ask yourself, how will you avoid the trap? So you want to set yourself up for success, as we said, okay. So of leads us to having a bad feeling about ourselves. We know we said that before you do the, the thing that you didn't want to do, You're like, it's like a moment when your sejo is being kidnapped. It's like, I know I don't want to do this, but I can't help myself, and I do it. And then after I've done it, your sejo says, why did I do that? Right? So it's like the moment before and the moment after you're disgusted with yourself. But at the moment that you're indulging in whatever it is, you just are out of control. You can't help yourself. Every morning in Davenin, we say, the Right? Don't make, bring me to a place of hate, which is a, a type of a sin. It's a type of a sin that we say is like a mistake. It's like you missed the target. You wanted to shoot there and you shot over there instead. That's a hate. The Avera, right? Another type of sin, a little bit more serious right? So Dina Screwmaker says she has a friend who's a psychologist who, deal, who deals with a lot of very put together people, people that from the outside look like they are leading the most successful lives, right? They're put together, they're well-to-do, their children are whatever. And she says um, they're upstanding citizens. And she asked him, which one of them do you think will fall into an addiction? You won't be able to tell by looking at them from the outside. You won't be able to tell by their education, by their BMI, by their wealth, by their career success. You'll never know. She says they're actually wired from birth to addiction. Just some of them know how to outsmart their time up. Some of some of these people are wired from birth to addiction, or actually these people that she sees, I guess, they were all wired from birth to addiction because we know that addiction, some people have more of a propensity towards it than others. Okay? So even this up, right, is something that is a nida, a measurement, that some people are given a more difficult time with than others. And it's part of their home there. It's how they were made, right? So she says, but some of them are successful because they're better at outsmarting their time. And they don't allow themselves to fall into it. So for example, she says that now when her son is getting ready for school, her you know, 12-year-old who she feels is still fine, she gets herself out of the room right she doesn't you know she doesn't make herself available because she knows it's her problem not her kids right i remember the first time my kids came home with homework and they're very close in age and just for some reason i remember like i don't know everybody had homework all of a sudden and they were all yelling for me ah, ah, ah. and i was going say. And I don't know. It was, uh, you know, is it odd or is it odd? There was an article in the New York Times. We were living in New York at the time, and it was all about don't hover when your children are doing homework. Take yourself to the farthest corners of your house. You know, hide if you like. Just get out of the room. So I mean, I just like that's what I'm gonna do. I don't know if I ever did homework with anybody again. I let, the, I let my husband take over that job. But but the point is, is you know, getting out of the scene of, of, of where you know that this is not going to be good for you is a very simple way of outsmarting the Yetzirahara. Okay, there's an idea that the bigger the Yetzirahara, the bigger the Yetzirahara, right? So when you see a, a righteous person, a sadi, a rabbi with a long beard, who everybody knows is, greatest, Godol Hador, right? You would say, what? He has a Hara? Come on, he is so elevated, he's so involved, he's been fighting his Hara since his bar mitzvah. He's been on the path of the spiritual But no, they say that don't be fooled. The bigger the Hato, the bigger the harah which means that person, as we all know, can reach the highest heights, whether it's spiritually or materially, and with one wrong move, can fall to the depths of the depths. And this is true in the physical world, right? And it's true, you know, be careful, uh, be nice to the people on your way up, because you might meet them on the way down, you know, that expression, okay? But it's also true in the spiritual world. That, you know, nobody gets rid of the Yetzir until 120. The Yetzir doesn't rest. The Yetzir comes back with a greater attack, with a greater strategy. And of course, this is the only way that we know we're alive. Because the Tzaddik is struggling spiritually with this Yetzir And he's been able to overcome again and again and again, which is what moves him up the ladder to success. But it doesn't mean the Yates or Hara ever disappears. It just becomes more wild. Okay? And more refined. Because as a person grows spiritually, you become more refined. You know, as I said, the first test is like, you decide you're going to try to keep kosher, right? And you have a big math attack. if you're trying to pass McDonald's, right? So this is a very gross battle that you're having with the Har but it's real and it's important and certainly all the forces of the universe want you to lose and will combine to make that happen because for a Jew to start keeping the Torah or following the Mitzvah or bringing more godliness into the world by being the Jew that we're meant to be all the forces of the universe, all the dark forces, the are Hara, the Sitra Akhra, the Satan, whatever you want to call it, the angel of death, they will come together and do battle with you. But again, you know, people who were born religious, born into very holy homes, they don't struggle? Well, what does that mean? And they never had to struggle with keeping Shabbos, keeping kosher, Right? But their battles are much more refined. Their battles can be, I don't speak Lashonara and all of a sudden I did once this month. What's wrong with me? <laughs> they can be very refined. And these, of course, are the people that we emulate. And we say, wow. And we say, these are our great people. Right? And that's why, you know, Balaychuvah and people converse. converts, they have to surround themselves with these kind of people to understand the levels that can be reached in this world by humans, right? And stories of great, great rabbis and great revisions, you know? I'll tell you one story quickly, one of my favorite stories about Ramosha Feinstein, saying Tzadik Nebracha. I'm sure a lot of you heard it, but he was considered to be the greatest rabbi of the generation. He lived in me up until the 80s he died in the early 80s. Um, and, you know, he was at the top of the totem pole. But, you know, it was like motion uh, after the Torah was given, right? That it, a question couldn't be answered by great rabbis, so it goes up to a higher level. And a higher level, and Rabbi Moshe Feinstein sat at the top. So the hardest questions from all over the world, after, you know, other great Torah scholars couldn't answer him puskin Halakha on it, went to him. So, he's brilliant. He's a brain. He's a genius. But that's not what we hold as important as Jews. We want to know that the person's midot, their character traits are as developed, if not more developed, that's even more important than their genius. So just a little story about him. He was once getting into a car. One of his yeshiva students was driving him. Uh, somewhere and another boy from the yeshiva put the rug into the car and when he closed the door he mistakenly closed it on Rav Moshe's finger. Now if anybody's ever had their door a door closed on your finger you know how that hurts. Now Rav Moshe had so much self-control and the self-control came from this incredible character trait and you can only develop through Torah of not wanting to embarrass someone. Because the Torah teaches that embarrassing somebody is like murdering them. And it's interesting, they say just like all the uh, blood in a person's face when they're embarrassed, right? They turn red. So too when you murder somebody, all the blood rushes to that wound. Right? So Ramosha went in the car and once it went around the corner out of distance from this boy who had put him in, he asked the driver, could you please pull over for a second? And the driver pulled over and Ramosha opened the door and took his hand up and said, sorry, my finger was caught in the door. Okay? So again, that's just, I mean, I can. you know, If we just told stories the entire class, we'd probably gain more than everything else that we talk about. But, you know, to interrupt with a story that really makes you understand, these are the great people among the Jewish people. And there are great people who are not necessarily the biggest scholars, but they are excellent in terms of the development of their readouts. And when we look to somebody to be great, we want both. If you're a great Torah scholar, but your meat owner are not up to to par, right? You're budding in line, or you're looking down at everybody else around you, or you don't have this tremendous love for everyone. you haven't developed, right? And if anything, I always say that if you are a Torah scholar, if you do have a genius, It's very easy and natural to start looking down at other people. It's the same in anything. If you have a lot of money, you look down at people who don't. What's wrong with them? Why could not they be successful? They're just a bunch of jlots. They didn't work hard enough. You know, whatever it is, right? We all get arrogant about whatever we're successful in. And that's why whatever it is, and of course if it's a spiritual thing, like learning Torah, it's even more uh, abhorrent. But the idea is is you have to have a strategy guard yourself against arrogance, and work very hard to be humble. You know, there was a, a certain practice in Europe, uh, when there were certain yeshivas where they little original, where so they used to, you know, wax themselves, The kind of like, you know, it was a certain garrif, I don't want to go into it. self-flagellation, okay? It doesn't sound very Jewish. Or they would deny themselves certain things, or, you know, like, even when I was uh, learning in Iyath, studying in, in Israel, you know, your natural thing, if you're coming into a room and there's all kinds of chairs there to sit in, your natural thing is to go and sit in the most comfortable chair, right? But if you're working on your humility, you'll say, let me find the most rickety chair. <laughs> That's what I'm going to sit in. Because I have such incredible air of prayer. Nobody's the going to sing. You are insufferable arrogance and towering pride, which we have naturally, okay? But the point is, if the person's working on the cells, they're looking for opportunities to make themselves small. Let me give that chair to somebody else. No, you sit here. I'll sit over there. It's fine, right? No, you get the best piece of the chicken. I'll take the, the, the other piece. So again, this is a conscious thing that people who are working on humility because they recognize how naturally arrogant they could be are going to work on. Okay, that was just a little bit of a, of a detour, but hopefully it was, uh, interesting for you. So it says that as big as a person is, the Yates are just fighting him. And obviously, if the are Hara and the Yetzir Tov are not equally matched, then a person loses their free will. So it has to be that as a person grows, their are Hara grows too, right? As the Yetzir Hara Tov gets stronger, so does the Yetzir Hara, because that's what gives us free will. Otherwise, there's no struggle, and there's no substance to your choice. There's no value to your choice, you know? It was easy. Okay. um, so penis says about herself, she, as a kid, she was always jealous of Bali chuba. She was jealous of people who were self-made, who made themselves from nothing. And she almost, I guess she was, her parents were involved in Kirib and had all kinds of people. I think her father was a shul rabbi in Englewood, New Jersey, when she was a kid. Later on, it became a rosh shiva in Israel for kids who were more, um, modern Orthodox becoming a little bit more to the right. And she said I was jealous of them because I thought they're really getting a whole on They're really like gonna get a great future because look at what they did. They took themselves from nothing and made themselves into something. And she said, but then I realized that even as an FFB, if you know that term, from from birth, right? That there's things I need to work on. And, and and, you know, just because so many things I do without thinking and by rote, because it's natural to me and I grew up this way, it doesn't mean there aren't areas that I need to become a self-made person in. That nobody's going to do it for me. So um, she gives an example of something called the halachas of yichud. For those of you who don't know what yichud is, there are laws about... Um, who you can be alone with in a closed place. So, for example, you know, if my husband goes out and a workman is coming in, and I'm not, I'm not so up on these laws. We have a book about this thick on it, a lot of that somebody gave us as a present. And the idea is that, you know, don't trust yourself till the day you die. Don't put yourself in situations where, God forbid, something could happen between members of the opposite sex. So there's all these rules. For example, if there's two women and one man, it's okay. If there's two men and one woman, it's not okay. If it's whatever, there's all kinds of different uh, scenarios of when it's okay. If you know that your husband's going to be back, you know, if, if, if the if the cleaning lady's here and I go out shopping and my husband's home working, am I allowed to, to leave? Right? Well, if I can come back at any moment, and everybody there knows it, then they're, then I can't, right? I'm sure you've heard about people who leave the door open, right? You're supposed to leave the door open a little bit when you're secluded alone with a man and a woman who are not husband and wife. And the truth is, is, if you think about it, how many professors and their students would have been stopped from certain behaviors that take place on college campuses, if they follow this law of evil, then the door has to be open, meaning that at any moment, anybody can walk in. Right? Or doctors and patients. I once had a girl I worked with, and she told me that a doctor attacked her. I don't know if she was making it up, but I had never heard a story like that before. But again, had the door been open, or had there been a nurse in there? Because the doctor knows I have a problem with uh, beautiful women, Sometimes I forget myself, you know, and yeah, the laws of Yichud; these things wouldn't happen. But the point is, is the laws of Yichud are for everyone. They're for the biggest Talmud the person who's in total, you know, who's in it, and for the lay person, for somebody, you know, some simple person. Because the idea is that you're at Shemayin, fear of heaven is about creating boundaries. If I'm not careful, I'm going to overstep boundaries. Right? I want to outsmart the elephant. So just to uh, one other point. So there's a Rav Dan N. Moshe Kestenbach. He wrote a book called Olam HaVa'ed. And there he writes that jealousy, lust, and honor, which he's quoting from the Mishnah of Pirkei Aos, remove a person from the world. So lust is tied Right. Jealousy, keen the couple. remove a person from the world. But he says it doesn't say which world. Which world are they removed from? Is it Olam hazat, this world, or Olam Haban? And she says there's a certain rule that he brings down, that when the message seems ambiguous, we should think it includes all the possibilities. Okay, so that means both worlds. Is talking about this world you'll lose, you'll be removed from in some way, and the next world. So she says, what is this talk telling us? She says, it's interesting that many things that are not good for your soul are also not good for your body. Right? It's an interesting thing that the same things that hurt you physically are actually also not good for your soul. So there's many titles that are not good for our health, right? Addictive substances are not good for our health. And even things that are healthy are only good for us in moderation, right? Too much physical pleasure of any kind, physical indulgence, is not only bad for the body, but obviously it's not good for the soul because it impedes the soul of being able to have this vehicle that's in top shape, right? To take it around and it's working at its, at its best place, you know, at its ultimate maximum, um, functionality, okay? So, technology is not good for the brain. There are relationships that suffer because of too much time, too much lack of impulse control. So what this vision is telling us is saying is that the quality of my life, if I can control my impulses, will be improved right now. And it's not just about the next thought. So if you tell somebody, you know, you should give up this tiger, this, this, this addiction. You know why? Because you'll be rewarded in Olam Haba. You'll have a good Olam Haba if you can overcome it. She says, this doesn't work for most people. I'm not going to give this up for something in the future, right? The whole nature of China is I want it, and I want it now, and I'm going to get it because I need it, and I have to have it. So don't tell me about in the future it's going to be good if I overcome this. I don't care, right? We want to have the immediate and connect the benefits. Of the fact of changing the quality of my life now, that it's good for me right now to be able to control my impulses. And you know, just to end with this last idea, Judaism has this built into it. You know, we talked about Shabbos before that on Shabbos we have mitzvah to dress up beautifully, to eat foods that are more expensive, more to delicacies than we would during the week. We have all of this. You know, as I said, if somebody from another religion were to peek into a Jewish home on Friday and Saturday, and somebody was to tell them, oh, the Jewish people are the holy people, they're the children of God, they are so holy, come, you want to see what they do on their holiest day of the week? Come with me, let's look through the people, let's see what they're doing, right? And they see us pressing, pressing, and pressing some more, right? They figure we're going to be lying on the ground going, hmmm. You know, we're going to be saying prayers from morning till night, and all kinds of incantations, and we're going to show the Indians how it's done. You know, like we, you know, we're the ones who brought religion to the world. No, we're eating, and then we're eating again, and then it's not bad enough into a third meal, right? That we can't even eat, but we're eating it anyway because that's what God wants. But the idea is is that we're outsmarting, so to speak. We're, we're giving our body, which is also part of. It, Right? You're, you're you're both body and soul. So, you know, you 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 want to get your body working together with your soul. You don't want them to be in combat with each other. You want them to be on the same team. And of course the body is generally the place of the games are right? So you 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 know you're throwing like fish to the body, right? And You are saying, Here, go on that here, have this. Beautiful clothes, yummy food, indulge. Have your chocolate cake today. Don't eat it all week long. Damn, go ahead and eat it, right? Because this is the holiest day. This is the day when your soul can reach heights that it can't reach all the other days of the week. So you're sad. body. You know why? Because you're both a body and a soul. And that's why when it says that these things remove a person from the world, it's talking about both this world and the next world. But we have to ask ourselves, why is this thing that I'm about to indulge in not good for me right now? Not even now. I don't want those extra pounds, right? I don't want to jeopardize this relationship by that stupid thing that I want to say because I have this incredible impulse to tell you you're a lazy bum, right? But I don't want to jeopardize this relationship. And I want to say this when I'm more calm. Is more receptive to hearing what I have to tell them, or out of love and not out of anger, right? So I want to control this because not only is it good for me in this world, my relationships will be more solid and more connected, but it's good for me in the next world because I'm growing my soul, right? When my body listens to the the seichel, if you want, of the soul that says, no, 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 this is just the moment. Wait till the future. Be the Father who says, I see ahead. Right? I'm not just going to give in to everything because I see what's ahead. Okay, I think we're going to stop there. We've spoken on a lot of things. But generally speaking, just to sum up, you know, we have to be our own guards. We have to be standing and knowing what our specific impulses are, where we regret them after we say it, do it, eat it, right, don't do it even though we should do it, procrastinate, and talked a little bit about how each of the elements, earth, wind, earth, water, wind, and fire have their specific challenges, right, wind is speech, so it's like, what should I say, what shouldn't I say, you know, Why don't I give a compliment instead of a criticism? Because that is not only good for me now, it's good for me in the next one. I'm building my spiritual muscles. I'm telling the body using my seichel. I know you want to just blurt it out. But I'm not going to allow you. You know what? I have strategies. You're going to leave the room when you want to blurt it out. You're not going to bring yourself to a place of criticism because you're going to make yourself such a positive person, such an iron toga that you're always focusing on, like they used to say, right? Uh, catch your.